And the idea is that, you know, if we force ourselves to stay away and have great willpower, our brain's constantly clicking in and out of what are these micro, really brief periods of sleep. Welcome to Beyond Unstoppable, the podcast that explores the intersection of biology, psychology, and technology. Here is your host, Ben Angel. In today's episode, we'll be diving deep into the world of advanced clinical nutrition and cognitive enhancement with expert Dr. Gregory Kelly. Dr. Kelly is an expert in nootropic stacks, which is supplements that support brain health and cognition. We'll explore the science behind these supplements, including the difference between synthetic and natural options, and how the Neurohacker Collective formulates their nootropic stacks based on nutritional deficiencies to find the optimal arousal zone for focus. Additionally, we'll examine the importance of sleep, body clock synchronization, and compounding good habits for future benefits. Dr. Kelly's passion for improving brain health shines through as he shares his knowledge. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review. Your support means the world to us and helps us reach more listeners who are ready to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Ben Angel's new book, The Wolf is at the Door, How to Survive and Thrive in an AI-Driven World. Presented by Entrepreneur. Get an exclusive sneak peek and pre-order at thewolfbookhub.com. Dr. Kelly, it's an honor to meet you here today. Now, I got to say, you may not know this, but you actually helped write three books in the last three years, which I think equated to almost 300,000 words. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, What we'll do is I'll explain how you actually helped me achieve that a little bit later on in the podcast. But first, I just want to ask you, your background, you have such a diverse background, but one thing that sparked my interest in your bio is that you worked in the field of advanced clinical nutrition. What led you to even begin investigating this particular area? It goes back to when I first graduated university. I went into the U.S. Navy, and when I got in, it was the first time that I ever was responsible for feeding myself, you know, many of my meals. And it occurred to me, I didn't know literally anything about what I should eat. I just always consumed whatever people put in front of me. So at the time I had a really good buddy that was, you know, your gym rap kind of guy that was into, you know, weightlifting and eating well and asked him for advice. And he directed me to a book that was popular in that time period, I believe was taught me to win. Nelson Hospital. It was a high complex carbohydrate, low fat type of approach to diet. And reading that at the time, it occurred to me, wow, I um, thought people that were feeding me knew what they were doing and they clearly didn't. So that's where I jumpstarted. I then became like the weird officer that often brought their own food or was really a picky eater. And from there, it's just continued to grow and evolve. So it goes back to really that formative time period in my early 20s. And when you were teaching at the University of Bridgeport Advanced Clinical Nutrition, Were there particular topics in the realm of mental health that you were focusing in on at the time where you realized, okay, we're giving everyone medicine and drugs, but we're not necessarily looking at nutritional deficiencies? Yes. So the way I architected that particular course was I actually started, the first lecture was about body clocks, circadian rhythms. The next one was about sleep. And the one after that was about cognition. So what I tried to do is take what I think of almost as the foundational things and then teach my students both about that, but then how diet and nutrition would interface with that. 
Um, and often my experience is people work backwards. So if they are like, wait, let's go after diet and weight loss. Well, weight is much more challenging to get a handle on if you don't get these other basics first. So, you know, the body clock, sleep, appetite as well, they're all regulated by part of the brain called the hypothalamus. So, you know, think of those things as the illusion of control. So we all think we're in charge of those and we are to an extent if we're managing them well. And if we're not, that part of our brain increasingly puts pressure on us, get what it needs. So that area of how the brain interacts with both our nutritional choices has always been fascinating. How much control do you think the general population has over those aspects right now? We've got all of these changes happening in artificial intelligence, diet, social media. We've been through a pandemic. It's almost as if everyone seems to be in a state of hypervigilance. I, I would say in that hypervigilance state, relatively low, certainly compared to what we assume we have. So sleep's a great example. All those things I mentioned are self-regulated. And what that implies is that the brain cares about that and keeps track of what it needs and then takes efforts to meet that need. And those efforts are often what scientists would say is biobehavioral changes in our behavior, changes in our biology. So sleep would be a big one. I remember back to the late 90s, some close doctor friends thought sleep was the enemy. You know, I can't afford to sleep more than four or five hours a night. It was a badge of toughness. You could get by with less. And at the time, I'm, I was like, this is ridiculous. You don't get to choose how much sleep you need. That's chosen for you. You either need it or biobehavioral things kick in. And one of the you know, most prominent behavioral ones is called micro sleep. And the idea is that you know, if we force ourselves to stay away and have great willpower, our brain's constantly clicking in and out of but are these micro, really brief periods of sleep. And that, that same thing occurs with any of these self-regulated drives. If we don't manage them well, we don't meet that need, there's pressure, or in the case of micro sleep, the brain's just taking over and saying, I'm going to do this for you since you're refusing to do it. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on specifically the phase of deep sleep? One thing I noticed when I was speaking to Dr. Patrick Porter from BrainTap, was that when they did a test on me, they believed that I was actually phasing into deep sleep in the middle of the day, which obviously isn't the best state to be in. And that could have been a time zone shift from Australia to here. But through the research, is it true that toxins that build up during the day get released during that deep sleep phase? So I, it's usually kind of as like the homeostatic sleep model, but there's two things that occur. So one, at the longer we're away, the more the pressure to sleep builds up. And that's called the adenosine signaling system. But adenosine is the metabolite. It's, it's a breakdown product from ATP. And the brain uses a ton of energy. ATP is the primary energy molecule in the body. And the other thing that counters that, the reason we don't go into deep sleep after being awake a couple hours is our body clock. It's clock-dependent alerting, usually how they refer to it. And the, the idea is, that when we have a really fit body clock, it actually staves off that need to sleep and compresses sleep into about an eight-hour window that coincides with what we think of as you know, normal sleep-wake cycles. Darkness and sunrise is the beginnings and ends of that. And so my guess, if your body clock was disrupted, that's going to change the orientation temporarily in time when deep sleep would want to occur. 
in relation to achieving focus and productivity, I couldn't have been able to write these books unless I, the illusion of control, I guess, to a large extent from what you're saying, try to control all of these external factors, particularly sleep. What level of impact does sleep have on our cognition, specifically achieving that state of flow? So quick story. I remember when I was teaching at University of Bridgeport in the naturopathic program, one day a student came up to me after a class and was fairly stressed and distraught and fundamentally said, Dr. Kelly, I need help. I'm trying to read my textbooks for my different courses and feel I would have to read the same thing over and over and it's just not sticking. And so my first question to this student was, well, how much sleep are you getting? And their response was, well, I can't really afford to get much sleep because I have to do all the studying. So they were sleeping about four or five hours. And my response was, well, what you're doing isn't studying. Studying would imply this idea of focus, tension, and ability to concentrate. And they would have been far better served getting enough sleep to have much better cognition in the day. Instead, they had this illusion they were studying, but without focus, generally for this idea of 10,000 hours to expertise, which isn't absolutely true, but it's a truism. But without the ability to focus, without that focused attention, what fundamentally would be the idea of focused practice, 10,000 hours won't get us any degree of mastery. It's just 10,000 wasted hours. So I think sleep is so overlooked because without quality sleep, our ability to direct our focus and sustain it during the day is so hampered. And it's also linked to the acquisition of new skills, right? In terms of the con consolidation of everything that you're learning. Even a nap will help. So a lot of things will get almost put in what would be thought of as the short-term budget as we acquire new information or skills during the day. And if we don't allow sleep to do its job, they never get transferred to the long-term storage where we then maintain them. So they just literally flow right through. Now, are you of the viewpoint that a nap during the day is one of the best things that you can do? So I think it depends on the person. My personal story is if you can sleep, you need sleep. So if that means taking a nap, then by all means, take a nap. Now, one of the things during the week, Monday through Friday, I generally take nootropics in the morning, sometimes between waking and 9 a.m. And what I know personally is I don't have the need to nap on days I do a nootropic stack. They allow me to stay productive, focused, through that lull that might normally happen and where a nap would feel good. Where on a weekend, I usually won't do a nootropic. And if I'm reading on the beach or in the sun, it's not uncommon to close the book and take a 20-minute, eyes closed, nappy type. I found that, like, I, I grew up on a cattle farm in South Australia. So I'm very much from the hustle until you die culture, which has taken a lot to train out of me. But I don't call it a mana nap. I, I call it a Jackie Chan power nap. So I can reframe that I'm not being lazy, I'm being effective and productive. But when it comes to nootropics, I think the first question a lot of people ask is, what are nootropics? Yeah, so easiest way to think of them would be the idea of, of smart pills, something that fundamentally adds resources for the brain. So I guess stepping back, the, the jobs of the brain often are bucketed. So cognitive scientists would say, okay, this bucket is memory, this one's language, this one's executive functions, this one's, they usually would say complex attention. And another one would be social cognition, so things like empathy. And 
way, at least I think of those different skills as more like a pyramid. So that the foundation of the pyramid would be the complex attention, which is things like being alert enough to be focused and then focusing your attention and avoiding distractions. That's all your base level. And if we don't have a solid foundation, we can't get to social cognition. We can't get to executive function because all those rely on being able to focus our attention. So at the most fundamental level, what nootropics do is they're things that support that complex attention foundation. They, more than anything, tend to help with that alertness, directing our attention, avoiding distractions, and then quite often they layer on additional things that would help with the executive function. Just think of that as a basket of skills and executive needs to really thrive in their busy life. But nootropic, usually their stacks of things together are things that really help with those particular two groups of skills. Because there are two types of nootropic, aren't there, in terms of synthetic versus natural sources? Yeah, that would be one way to slice it. There's like the original person that coined the term nootropic was a, a pharmacist, chemist, researcher from Romania. And the original molecule he discovered and coined the term nootropical was called paracetam. So paracetam, which would be a synthesized chemical. And racetams is not as a category. And I think of them as a gray area. They're not dietary supplements and they're also not free drugs because they've been around so long, there'd be no money in making them through the drug pipeline. So there's those more chemical end. And then there's a lot of nootropics that are either plant compounds or dietary. So I mentioned the 10,000 hours and that idea of focusing attention. One of the key neurotransmitters you hear about with neurotropics is acetylcholine. And an easy way to think about acetylcholine would be, it's about relevance. It's about, uh, wow, pay more attention to this. This is important. Before we continue, Beyond Unstoppable is brought to you by Ben Angel's new book, The Wolf is at the Door, How to Survive and Thrive in an AI-Driven World. Get your exclusive sneak peek and pre-order at thewolfbookhub.com. Now, back to the show. And that combines that idea of both of the attention bucket, but then learning and memory. So we need acetylcholine to focus attention, to get the brain locked in, and to have the plasticity to reshape the brain to accommodate the learning and memory we have from that focused session. So acetylcholine, like the end of the story, is made from choline, which is something we get in the diet, but the Institute of Medicine thinks somewhere 80 to 90% of us don't quite meet their recommended amount. So Cholines that can get through the blood brain barrier. So things like citicoline or alpha GPC are nootropic, in part because they're the resources needed for this super important neurotransmitter. And do you think that nootropics help to somewhat fill a gap in terms of nutritional deficiencies? For sure. I think you had made that distinction chemical and, you know, natural. So a lot of the ones that would be dietary components are filling gaps. And that's part of the reason that they're helping the brain. And concept to lock in is this idea that they'll sometimes use the term brain essential nutrients. So there's certain things the brain can make for itself. It doesn't need us to get them in the diet. Cholesterol would be one. The cholesterol in our diet doesn't make it through the blood-brain barrier. The cholesterol in the brain, it makes for itself. But a lot of the other things, and I, I usually just label those as resources, and brain essential nutrients. These are things like some of your essential fatty acids, choline, vitamins. If we're not getting enough of those in the diet, the brain's going to be starved for them. And since the brain 
is a voracious consumer of energy. It's usually the general estimate is the brain consumes about 20% of our body's energy supply in the day. We'll suffer first and hardest when resources are scarce. And a main resource are things that are involved in these neurotransmitter building, recycling, and then fueling brain energy. And what about your own personal experience in terms of nootropics? What led you to that point to look at this particular aspect? Were you struggling with a lack of focus or brain fog, or was it just a natural progression from where you began? More a natural progression. One of the things I've always found interesting, both when I was a naturopathic student and then teaching, many come to it because they had some issue and a naturopathic doctor or holistic practitioner helped them with that issue. And they're like, this is so cool. I want to embrace this. And for me, that really wasn't the case. So it's more of my brain is just super curious about learning new things. And I would say that I've always been driven by this concept of what does health look like and how do we do more to get better. And the brain is, if not the most, certainly a hum that impacts so many of other things. And as a naturopathic doctor, it's semi-comical that. But when I was a student, we would um, have doctors that we would shadow in the clinic. Quite often, naturopathic doctors would tell these new patients, oh, you need to change your diet and get more sleep and start exercising and do these supplements. And there'd be this list of all these changes to make, right? And those all pull on, I'll just call it the willpower reservoir, right? Change requires something, willpower, energy. And they'd be asking these people to make these crazy diet, lifestyle, et cetera, changes without often adding additional resources to the brain. And without the brain having more resources to draw to drop on, it's probably tapped out. So that's where the tropics come in. For me, the idea that I would be asking people to do more without providing them more support just seemed, in hindsight, ludicrous. And so that's part of where it evolved to was I need to be better at supporting the brain if I'm asking people to make a lot of changes. Yeah, well, I actually credit you for your work with formulations at the Neuro, Neurohacker Collective. Because before I wrote my book, Unstoppable, which was a 90-day mission to overcome depression and get my brain back, I was ready to give up my writing career and put the pen down. That's how bad the brain club was. So talk to me about how do you come up with these formulations and the amount of research that goes behind it? Because I can imagine that it has to be extensive, especially when you're dealing with the brain. Yeah, so what we do at Neurohacker Collective, it's really a stepwise progression. The first thing will be just doing minimalistic research, try to understand the system, the landscape of what's out there. Because if there's already great products in the area, we may not want to do it. Why create? There's no need for a solution. There's already a great solution. So we'll do that like market research phase. And then if there looks like there's a better solution needed, then we go really deep into, so if it was the brain, we'd learn about the different cognitive systems, you know, the neurotransmitters, energy, like energy is forefront, right? like without good energy production, mitochondria, it's really hard to sustain any of these things. So we'll do this crazy deep dive on becoming smart in that topic area. And then during that, we're usually compiling this huge list of potential ingredients that we could conceivably use. And then it gets 
fun, but only if you're nerdy. We'll then read the studies on every ingredient and then summarize those and rank them one to five. Say, okay, this ingredient was five stars. Like this would be four if we want to do this for the brain as an example. This one's a one or two, probably not. Threes and fours are a little bit more um, borderline. Like, oh, there's value here, but is this going to add another capsule or is, is it duplicating something else? And then when all of that is done, which could take a year, then we'll sit down and team will then make trade-offs. What's the best formula that we can build that's going to deliver these specific results to the brain? And then after that, we'll build it and do a small study. We'll get it in the hands of people and see if, in fact, it actually does that in the real world. And if all of that happens and goes right, then it becomes a point And do you, during that formulation phase, do you also consider what are the main nutritional deficiencies at a population level that we may have to factor in for? Absolutely. So that's a big part of how we would come up with some of the dosing. So I'm not, and nor is um, neurohypercollective, a more is better mindset. Like I, I'm much more Goldilocks. Support. For most things, there's a just right amount. And so something like choline, as an example, oh. most people don't get enough choline, but that doesn't mean most people get no choline. Yeah. There's on average, maybe 100, 120 milligrams gap between they're getting and what would be a more optimal amount. So the goal isn't to give all of the choline that you should get in a healthy diet. It's to make sure that you're filling that gap, especially in terms of nutritional things like amino acids, choline. I'm very much of the mindset of let's figure out what amount is going to help the most amount of people and make sure that's what we're supplying. And what is the process in relation to helping people get into their say, optimal arousal zone for focus. For me, I look at focus and think, all right, have I had too much caffeine and I've exceeded it and now I'm hypervigilant, I'm scared and I can't focus, or I've had too much and then I crash and then I can't do anything. How do you adjust it? Because the older I get and working on a new book and having to do a lot of the research on social media due to artificial developments happening online in real time, I'm finding that harder to strive that balance, whereas I'd previously mastered it before. Well, that's a great question. And this is a generality. But I tend to think of there's two completely different things that interfere with us being able to get focused and stay focused. The, on one side, you would have what I would almost say like lethargy, like lack of motivation, lack of drive. So to get that person to that sweet spot of focus, something has to be added in motivation drive into the picture. The other end would be what I would usually say frazzled. Like the brain took, there's too much going on. So that person, it's more calming to move them back. They don't need the arousal as much as they need calming to move back to center. And so those can be quite different formulations or if like quality of mind was intended for both. So there's things like a low amount of caffeine, but again, we think of it as just the right amount rather than too much. But there's things that balance that caffeine out that help with focus. So stacking the caffeine with something called amy, which naturally occurs in uh, green tea, as an example, and it's a real calming amino acid-like thing that helps take that edge off caffeine. So instead of caffeine 
it's called the Yerkes Dodson Law. Think of like an upside down U. And the idea is something like caffeine, just right amount will take us to the sweet spot at the top, but too little, we won't quite get there too much. Then it's easy to start performance slides down the other way and suffers. And what's super common in our current world is there's crazy high amounts of caffeine and things like energy drinks and what people would consume at the coffee shop. And I think of the nootropic range, the just right amount of caffeine for focus and productivity for the vast majority of us is 50 to 200 milligrams. So a lot less than most people are getting. And if they're already getting too much, they're going to be in that hypervigilant and do much better with things like Bacopa is an Ayurvedic herb that's more common in nature or alpha Indian I mentioned tend to help take that frazzled brain and calm it enough that it, it gravitates. So adaptogens would be the, the general term for things like that, that tend to create that normalizing no matter which end of the spectrum you happen to be on. And would you say one of the biggest challenges maybe with creating a formulation is people taking it and then on top of it, having excessive amounts of caffeine and then sending themselves through the roof, which full disclosure I've done before. I don't know if there isn't anyone who has it, but you learn very quickly. We were just at the biohacker conference in Orlando recently. And at shows like that, we'll often bring volume mind, which is our our premier tropic stack, and then a simpler stack called Boya Focus. So they, they overlap in terms of how you would experience both in a day or a week. And a couple of times given people both and they've taken both and then they come back, they're super feeling it. But now there's like the amount of caffeine in those two combined, you're at that high end now of that nootropic zone. And if you already had say coffee or caffeine somewhere else, you probably tipped over into maybe past what would be the ideal sweet spot to, be as productive and focused as you'd want, where one of those, especially in an environment like that, is usually great for people because in the simple way to think about it, and going back to this idea that brain energy ultimately drives everything. And our brain is always trying to conserve energy or become more efficient. So we talked a bit about learning earlier. The reason our brain learns things and becomes more expert in large parties to save energy. It takes way less energy for a virtuoso pianist or guitarist to play their instrument and than it would take you or I. Like we, we'd make bad music and it would take a lot more brain energy to do it. And so a lot of what I think of nootropics doing is they help that energy budgeting too. So that's why I think of a good nootropic isn't just something you take and an hour later you're feeling like, cool, this worked. I'm like in the zone. It's how are you doing six hours later? How are you doing at the end of your day when you get home to your loved ones? Are you an angry beast and an irritable? Or are you like still the best version of yourself? And so when I think of good nootropic stacks and when we make nootropic stacks with the qualia label, we're not only thinking, oh, what, what's going to happen an hour from that? We fundamentally want to know is at the end of the day, that person still got enough resources and mental energy to show up and be there the best version of themselves. And so that sustained like ability to both focus, be a good version of yourself through the day, that gets back to these ideas of like, yeah, it worked on this attention bucket and probably executive function, but now social cognition, we didn't sacrifice that. And so when we're creating formulas, we're trying to holistically upgrade as many things across the board. And what is the 
price that we pay for being too focused. So for example, when I review one of my books, I typically do it incredibly quickly. So I'll read 90,000 words in one day, but then there's a price I pay the next day. How far can we extend the runway in relationship to focus? I would argue that most things have that Goldilocks zone where there's a just right amount and that beyond that, we, for lack of a better word, almost overtrain in an exercise and like performance suffers. And there's often a residual effect to overtraining from exercise, muscle soreness, joints say. And that I, I don't think our brain is particularly different. If we force it to do way more a certain task, then it'll like, we'll often be able to tough it out, we'll power through it, but it's making trade-offs to do that. And so what's usually recommended by neuroscientists is what are called attention restoration. But think of these as periodic breaks the day to restore our attentional um, cognition capabilities and what that allows. So think of it when you were doing what you just said, reading all of these things in a day, you're working your brain very uneven. You're really reliant on prefrontal cortex, that all the systems that help with, like it's usually called the salience network, the attention network, those networks, the executive function one, those are just being tasked to run over and over and over. And they'll run short of resources. And then you obviously have enough willpower to just stick through it. But what would be often better for people is after about an hour, maybe two max at that, you take some kind of a restoration break. And the best attention or restoration is usually nature for most people. And it's what they will sometimes think of as soft attention. So watching, you know, something with nature. So clouds drifting, water running, fish in a fish tank. And we don't have to actually be in nature. We'll get a lot of that restoration watching a video of that. But what often happens in our modern world is people will take their break and then look at their phone or social media that are now, instead of restoring attention, they're using often those same attentional resources just for a different thing. So they're, they're draining the tank even more. And so I often asked, like, couldn't we do a product for creativity? And creativity is almost the antithesis of focus. And the creativity emerges when we do attention restoration. It's not something we could take a pill and magically, oh, no, I'm beta, especially if we were just in a state that we wanted to be focused. So I just think we do a really poor job currently in our society, appreciating the importance of attention restoration. Are you a practice of visualization or even gazing meditation to help make those connections to creativity? So the subset of people who knows what the percent below, say three to 5% maybe of the population that have what's done a bit aphasia. So we're non-visual. So if you said, Greg, picture a red rose, but my brain doesn't my brain just doesn't run that software, but I'm really kinesthetic. So for me, just closing my eyes and, and putting my attention there is really restorative. For the past couple of years, I've been practicing gazing meditation. So finding a point on the horizon and just kind of softly gazing that, but making sure I'm having an extra dose of L-theanine before it to kind of realign the brain chemistry. And I found that before I sit down to ride, I can go maybe four hours without losing your focus. What, what's your thoughts on that kind of practice? Oh, I think that's great. So I think in psychedelics, they use the idea of set and setting a lot. So unfortunately, I'm right by the ocean in Southern California. So even now while we're speaking, I can glance over my computer and see the ocean 
in the distance. And what I do through the day, but especially in, in the morning, is I just go for brief walks down to the beach, around the block, look at the flowers, you know, stop and look at it beach. All of those things, to me, help my creative process immensely. And then you mentioned stacking theanine, and theanine's great because it helps de-stress the brain, it helps shift the brain into a more relaxed state of focus. So like a calm book is how I tend to describe what theanine does, where too much caffeine gets us that, like you said, hypervigilant type of focus, which isn't as productive. No, not at all. That's the last kind of focus that I need, especially for working and writing. So I'm going to ask you one final question. If you could go back to your 20-year-old self, what knowledge would you want to impart on him in relation to here are the key mechanisms you need to work on to achieve a level of focus so you can achieve your career objectives? What knowledge would you share with him? I think I would just really go back to the most foundational things. So what I did back then, I had the exercise piece pretty dialed in. I would sacrifice almost anything else to exercise back then. I did a good job of reasonably eating well, given the constraints of being on a ship a lot. What I did really poorly with was not realizing the importance of body clock and sleep. As an example, if I was out at sea, off Hawaii Monday through Friday, I'd come back Friday night. And even if I was exhausted, I would go out till two in the morning with my you know, friend instead of like, oh, sleep would be a better use of this time, catching up on that or not realizing that we can create social jet lag. This idea that if we're going to sleep at say 10 at night, Monday through Friday, and then decide to stay up till two on Friday and Saturday, that creates the equivalent of jet lag because of our social you so some things like that. I didn't know that I would have been great for that younger person. And then just the general idea of compounding things, like good habits over duration compound, just like financial good decisions compound over time. So yeah. like, I would have really pressed a finch that younger version of me really get this idea of compounding. Oh, I did this and I didn't get this immediate gratification or benefit, but these are investments for this future self that they're really going to thank Absolutely. Well, Dr. Kelly, I can't thank you enough for showing up. And like I said, I credit you for helping me get my brain back so I can continue my work as an author. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Pat. Learn more about Dr. Gregory Kelly and his work at neurohacker.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Beyond Unstoppable and visit thewolfbookhub.com for your exclusive sneak peek of The Wolf is at the Door. And stay tuned for next week's episode.